Good morning, all. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, senior pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, and we welcome you to a new Bible study that we're starting this morning, or at least a new topic that we're starting this morning. We welcome all who are here with us uh, in our gymnasium, and we welcome all who in the St. Louis area who are listening on KFUO 850 AM and worldwide, those who are listening on KFUO.org. So let's begin with a word of prayer, if we might. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this day on the day we are celebrating Epiphany, thanking you for making known your Son to us through the water and word of holy baptism and continuing to make him known to us and to the world through your word and sacrament. We ask your blessing upon us today as we begin a new topic, the study of the Gospel of John. We pray your Holy Spirit's continued presence and blessing with us that we might continue to grow in our faith, our knowledge, our understanding of your word, and especially its implications for us as your children living here. We ask your blessing then to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I indicated, we're going to begin a study of John today, and we will just keep going through John uh, until we're done. That's how long it's going to go, until we're done. And (laughs) that'll depend in some part on uh, questions that are asked and discussion that takes place, and we certainly uh, always welcome that. So obviously, um, we're going to start with a little background information, both on John himself and on the gospel. And then my goal, at least, or I hope we might get through chapter 1, verse 14, which is a rather well-known verse. But uh, anyway, if we don't make it, that's quite all right. If you have questions to ask or uh, comments to make, uh, you are certainly encouraged to do so. So, first of all, uh, John himself. Uh, the tradition has it, the only of the apostles that uh, at least was reported not to have died a-, a martyr. In other words, of the 12, the only one who did not die uh, as a result of his faith. I guess you could also put Judas in that category as well. But uh, he is not the one. Uh, he, and we'll talk a little bit about what tradition says happened to John uh, after, uh, on the cross, as you recall, uh, Jesus says to, her, to uh, John, behold your mother, and to Mary, behold your son. And we'll talk a little bit about what, again, outside the Bible, tradition has to say about what John did and how he uh, ended his life. Uh, John, uh, who, in terms of the author, there's no doubt uh, in our minds, John, the Apostle John, uh, brother of James and son of Zebedee, uh, is in fact the author of the gospel. That really has never been challenged very seriously at all, even by uh, so-called liberal scholars. Uh, in terms of the authorship of John, has always been very, very secure in terms of uh, the, the testimony to it, especially in the early church, uh, all attributed it uh, to John. He, of course, also uh, wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. So we're talking about the same guy uh, in all of those texts, all of those books. So what can we know about John, first of all, uh, as we look at the scriptures themselves and the gospels especially? Uh, let's turn to Mark chapter 1. Might seem strange turning to Mark to talk about John. But Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 19 through 20, Mark 1, 19 through 20, and I'm going to make an observation here and then connect it to something else 
and put something else together with it. So Mark chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Okay? So going on, uh, and going on a little farther, he, that would be Jesus, saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And it's that last portion that I want to zero in on, obviously, again, brother of James and son of Zebedee, but did you notice, left Zebedee and the servants. So there is speculation that John and his family were quite well-to-do. In other words, this was not a one- or two-man fishing operation. He had servants that were left behind as well. Okay? Unlike Peter, who seems to be just a solo uh, fisherman, not, not with any kind of big business. But it could well be that John, and especially comes from a family, Zebedee himself, had a pretty uh, affluent uh, fishing business going here. And notice again, leaves the paid servants in order to follow him. Now, here's where we put something together. Let's go now to John chapter 18. And this is right after Jesus is arrested. And he is taken, of course, uh, to the high priest's headquarters. First they go to Annas, who is the, you might say, retired high priest, but was still kind of the godfather around at that time. And they take Jesus to him first. But then they go to Caiaphas, who is the in-office high priest at that time. So John 18 15 through 16. Simon Peter followed Jesus. This is after the arrest now. And so did another disciple. I got to take a time out here. John often does not refer to himself by name. We'll see a little bit later. He'll talk about the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's almost universally accepted that he's talking about himself. And something like this, another disciple. So whenever you hear him talking in the third person without a name, it's almost universally accepted he's talking about himself. He's not naming himself, but he's actually referencing himself in that, in that way. Okay? So let me start over again. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, a couple things here. We often, and I've said this myself, You know, we talk about Jesus being arrested, and we all, uh, sometimes we will say something like, and all the disciples did what? Scattered and left him. Well, here's two who didn't, okay? And you've got John, the disciple, who was known to the high priest and was able to just get in, it seems, just walk right into the courtyard out there, outside of the high priest's residence, unchallenged. And Peter, 
doesn't have that kind of uh, uh, reputation or ability to get in. He's stuck outside. What might be the case here? Why might John be known to the high priest? His affluence. The high priests uh, were Sadducees, and unlike the Pharisees, they were uh, quite well-to-do. In fact, the high priesthood kind of stayed in certain families over time and could be, we think, even purchased. So here's the theory, and I've got to say, we don't have this in the Scriptures, but if it is the case that John is quite wealthy, Sadducees would be certainly open to fellowship with uh, those who are wealthy. And he apparently had the sway to just walk right in. How else does he get known by the high priest? And then, notice, he is the one who gets Peter into that courtyard. He goes to the servant girl, whose job it was to watch the gate, keep the riffraff out, and he convinces her to let Peter in. And, of course, after he gets in, we know what happens, right? He denies even knowing Jesus uh, three times before the rooster crows, just as Jesus predicted he would, okay? So, it may be, again, it may be the case that he comes from a more affluent type of family, and that because of that, he was well-known, and especially to the high priest and to those who liked those who were quite affluent and uh, would hobnob with them, to use a, a modern term or a colloquialism. Okay? So again, uh, notice again, this happens right after Jesus is arrested. So it's not the case that all the disciples fleed. John goes right in with uh, them into the courtyard of the high priest, and then he gets Peter in there as well. Okay? All right. Yes? Yes, yes. It was chosen by Lot, but there were families that were uh, kind of in control of who got, who got the lot, so to speak. Who got to participate in the lot. Yeah, casting the lots. We don't know exactly what that is or what that entails, but we see that in a number of places in the scriptures. Uh, for example, when they're replacing Judas... It says the lot fell to Matthias, right, in Acts chapter uh, 1. Okay, yes, David. Yes, yes. The question was, is it presumed that John was the youngest of the disciples? And yes, he is certainly younger than James, we know that. And the other reason we think that he was so young is because the date that we have for the gospel of John to be written, for example, and Revelation and you can, it'll, it'll vary uh, a few years one way or the other, is about 90 A.D. So it's quite advanced in his life that he writes the Gospel and Revelation. We're not as sure about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but there are many scholars who think that these books were all written around 90 and into the 90s. So he was a young guy uh, when he was with Jesus. Yeah, it's a good point. Okay? Anything else? All right, let's move on. Um, The other thing about John is that John, along with his brother James and the disciple Peter, always seemed to be on the inner circle and there when something important was going to happen. 
when the other disciples, it seems, weren't always included. It was always Peter, James, and John who were there when something big or momentous was happening. For example, you got the uh, raising of the uh, Jairus' daughter, and Jesus comes to the house, but he only takes Peter, James, and John into the bedroom where uh, he, uh, she is uh, there, and raises her. That's the you know little girl I say to you arise, and it's Peter, James, and John. The other uh, they're the only ones there with Jesus. The others are not included there. Who gets to go up on? We're gonna before long be a transfiguration. It's gonna be here before we know it. Who gets to go up on Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. And Peter doesn't really distinguish himself too much there. But anyway, it's those three, right? The inner circle. Um, on Monday, Thursday evening, who gets to go further into the garden with Jesus when he is going to pray? Peter, James, and John. Yeah. So and these are just three examples. Uh, there are others. But at any rate, Peter, James, and John always seem to be in the heart of the important stuff that's going on. So again, he is, he is there. Um, the first time we see, or one of the times we see him refer, I mentioned this before, he refers to himself in the third person. And let's take a look at, um, let's take John 19, uh, verses 25 through 27. And there are five times when he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think, I guess you could maybe say, isn't that a little conceited to refer to yourself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? But at any rate, uh, number one, it appears to be true. And secondly, um, you know, it's, it's just, again, uh, maybe a more humble way than saying, I, John, was the one who did this or was allowed to do this. So John 19, 25 through 27 this is Jesus at the cro- or while he's on the cross, and John has one of the incredible accounts of Jesus on the cross and his passion. But let's look at 25 through t- uh, 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, see, there's, there's one of those times, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, notice just, just the disciple. John doesn't say to me. He says to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And again, tradition outside the Bible says that John did exactly this. He did just as Jesus asked him to do and cared for Mary for the remainder of her years here on this earth and actually uh, went and settled and lived in Ephesus and made Ephesus, that's in modern-day Turkey, made Ephesus the uh, headquarters, you might say, his base of operation, throughout all of Asia Minor and resided there. Uh, now, you can go to Ephesus today and uh, they will, uh, on, on, you see all these tour buses, 
they'll take you to a house that they say, this is the house where, uh, where John cared for Mary for the rest of her years. And I usually say, don't bet the farm on that. Uh, we, don't, we don't go there when we've, when we've gone there. We have totally skipped that. I mean, it, it's true that he settled in Ephesus and did care for Mary. But to say that's the house, uh-uh. It's, it's too modern, quite frankly. It's just too modern. Uh, all, the, all the Roman Catholic buses are heading, you know, heading out that way, and we, the Lutherans, we just go in and see the, the ruins in Ephesus and uh, don't bother. But anyway, he, he apparently was obedient and, uh, to what Jesus asked him to do and uh, settled in Ephesus. Now, let me show you one other thing. And again, I, we cannot prove this from the scriptures. This is outside the Bible. But take a look in verse 25 that we just read. His mother's sister. Jesus' mother's sister. Outside of the scriptures, does anybody know who the, uh, the conjecture is that this was? Mary's sister? Salome, a lady named Salome. Okay. In the Bible, there's a good Salome and a bad Salome. This would be the good Salome. And um, not, not the other one. Uh, now, the, I didn't want to get off in, a, in the weeds of this, but there are a number of places. First of all, Salome is mentioned by name. She's there at the crucifixion. She's there at the resurrection on Easter morning. And the conjecture is that whenever it's his mother's sister, that's referring to this same person, this Salome. Okay? If this is the case, who came to Jesus? Oh, and and I forgot to mention that Salome then is also conjectured to be the wife of... Zebedee. Okay? Now again, this is putting two and two together from a bunch of different passages, and we don't have it solidified, so because nowhere does it say Salome was the sister of Mary, the Virgin Mary. But let's just think for a moment, if this is true, who is it that comes to Jesus and says, grant that my boys may sit one at your right and one at your left when you come into your kingdom. The mother of James and John. Now what if she is also the sister to the Virgin Mary? So we've got Jesus' aunt coming, if this is true. His aunt coming and say, grant that your cousins might sit one at your right and one at your left. And does this make it even more sense that John is the disciple whom Jesus loved? He's actually half-related from a human standpoint, if this is true. Okay? So you could read, there's a, lot, there's a lot written on this, and I didn't want to get off in the weeds on this, like I say, but we could look at the passages that at least kind of set it up as a possibility. And again, we, we can't say absolutely positively for sure. Now... So if this is the case, you've got, think about this now, from the Virgin Mary, who's her cousin? Elizabeth. Who's the mother of? John the Baptist. And if this is true again, you've got her sister, who is the wife of 
Zebedee, the mother of James and John. Kind of all in the family in some ways, isn't it? When you, if, if this is true, it really narrows down the whole aperture, you might say, of, of Christ's relatives, human, uh, earthly relatives and family. Okay? So again, I can't, we can't prove this. Nobody can prove it. It's not, it's not, there's no, no verse that directly identifies and defines this. However, uh, there's kind of putting two and two together from different verses that make it possible. I'll just say that, make it possible, okay? But while we were on that verse, I didn't want to leave without, without uh, at least mentioning that, okay? Um, there is another uh, early church father named Tertullian, and he was a church father uh, late second century in North Africa, and he references something that obviously is not in the scriptures because this happened, supposedly happened way after uh, it was written, that John, he, he basically says, John was sentenced to be boiled in a vat of oil, and it was tried, and he was unfazed by it. And then he was sent to Patmos, exiled to Patmos, which we know did happen, and he received the revelation from God. And Tertullian says this in a sentence, just in passing, as if everybody should know about this. And that's what makes people think about it, that he, he just references it in passing as if, well, of course, everybody knows about this, and again, we have no account of this in the scriptures, but again, this is one of the key early church fathers. So did that happen? I can't say, nobody can say whether it did or did not today, but this early church father, very respected, Tertullian, uh, did say this. I remember reading this about a year ago, and I thought, boy, I never heard about that at all. And again, in some ways, you could say, well, what, what does it matter? But in another way, we talked about how John was not a martyr for his faith, but there were certainly, a, if that's true, there was certainly an attempt to make him a martyr for his faith. So he did not deny his faith, whether that is true or not. Certainly on his, in his exile on Patmos, he did not deny his faith as well. All right? Let me stop there for a moment. Any comments, questions? All right, let's continue. Um, the word, in, in, now some things about the Gospel of John. In the, in the Gospel of John, the miracles of Christ are always, or not always, but so many times, uh, in fact, 17 times between chapters 2 and 12, the word sign is used to reference a miracle. Well, we would say a miracle, John says this is a sign, okay? Let me show you just one example early on, John 2.11, very first miracle. By the way, remember, what was the very first miracle? Turning water into wine, right, at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. So John 2.11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So a sign, when we think of a road sign, is the road sign the most important thing? It points to something else, doesn't it? That is important, usually. 
You know, either there's an exit coming up or there's an arrow that you're supposed to go this way and so on. So the sign is not the end in itself. What were Jesus' signs, these miracles, what were they pointing to? Something much more important. It's not the miracle itself. It's what that sign reveals about the identity of Jesus. That he is not just a miracle worker, but he is the Christ, the Son of God. Okay? And so you will see repeatedly in John the use of the word sign. Okay? And another thing that is at the end, uh, near the end of verse 11, is the glory of God. The glory of God. We see that repeatedly, and we're going to even come across it. We get to our verse that we'll look at. Uh, you'll see the glory of God throughout the book of John. And John, in many ways, will talk about the glory of God in great power and great miracles. But John is the one that brings in the glory of God in connection with the cross. And we're going to see that when we get to Jesus' high priestly prayer, where Jesus says to his Father, glorify your name. He's, he's, no, he's going to the cross the very next day. Glorify your name. And a response comes back, I will. You know, and he's, he's talking about the cross, basically, there. And, you know, I know I have put this in sermons in the past, that, you know, we as human beings, we, when we talk about glory, we're talking about power and majesty and all these things. If you want to see the glory of God most clearly manifested for all to see, look at the cross and see there the glory of God who would die in our place and for us. And John is going to help us to see that. He's the one who connects the glory of God with the cross. Okay? And we'll see that coming up uh, in weeks ahead when we get to, the, uh, to those sections. Uh, there's also a lot of um, contrast, we might say, in John. Light and darkness. And we're going to see that coming up. But there's the contrast between light and darkness, between falsehood and truth. And things above and things below. And so we're going to see a lot of these contrasts. Only in John do we see Jesus described as being uh, the water of life. In fact, he refers to himself as, remember, a living a spring will spring up inside of you with water that leads to eternal life when he's with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And remember, she says, give me some of that water, right? <laughs> we'll get to that point. Um, the bread of life. Right? I am the bread of life. He who believes in me shall not hunger. Uh, the light of the world. Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. He refers to us as the light of the world as well. So anyway, um, we'll see these contrasts in the book of John uh, as, as we go through. Then there are the so-called I am statements. I am statements. These are in John. Uh, and there's a debate, or there's not a debate, but there's um, scholars are unsure about how many of them they want to count as I am statements. An I am statement, and if you uh, look at our cross up in our chancel, you will see, I believe it's seven, 
of the I am statements of Jesus depicted on that cross that is right in our chancel. And so I am, for example, I am the good shepherd, right? And what's so special about the words I am? That is a God's, you might say God's personal name that he gives us in Exodus chapter 3, I believe it's verse 14, when God is calling Moses from the burning bush, right? The bush that's not consumed. And God says, I want you to go to my people and tell them that their God is going to, in effect, lead them out. And of course, remember, Moses comes up with every excuse he can under the book to not do that. But one of his excuses was, well, Lord, if I go to them and tell them and they ask, who is it that sent? What's the name of the one who sent? What should I say? And God replies, tell him I am has sent you. And in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. I am or I am who I am has sent you. Okay? So the connection is, is Jesus, by using these I am statements, making himself the equivalent to Yahweh. And we believe he is. Let me show you one uh, obvious one where it's very clear that they took him this way. Let's take a look at uh, uh, John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58. John 8, 56 through 58. And so Jesus here is talking to, um, again, in, in the Jerusalem area, uh, or Judea area, some who are opposing him. And so starting at verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. So Abraham rejoiced that he would see the day when the Redeemer would come, right, and walk upon this earth. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay? Now, look at what they did right after that. So they picked up stones to throw at him, because Jesus, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why would they pick up stones to throw at him if they weren't taking it the way he probably intended it? Before Abraham was, I am. And we're going to see some other spots where Jesus talks about himself using that I am, that personal name of God from the Old Testament. Whenever you're reading your Old Testament and you see the word Lord and all the letters are capitalized, that's the Hebrew Yahweh, okay? God's personal name in the Old Testament. And one of the earliest Christian confessions of faith in Jesus was to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. Okay? By saying that, you're equating that Jesus is not just a great teacher or a great moral example or whatever. He is Lord. Okay? So, we'll see this throughout John. There are a number of them. There's at least seven. We know that from our cross in the church. But there, and again, you always have to ask yourself, did Jesus mean to, did Jesus intend that meaning 
in these verses, you know, some of the verses, because you could get quite a few of them. If you, if you look at every time Jesus says, I am, you could get quite a few of them. So we've got to be careful and not say every time Jesus says, I am, that he's intentionally asserting that, you know, that, that divine name to himself. Okay? Um, John focuses more on Jesus' ministry in Judea and especially Jerusalem, where the other gospel writers seem to focus more on his ministry up in the north in Galilee, Capernaum, and the Sea of Galilee, and that whole area. We're going to see with John, it's more the uh, Judea and Jerusalem area, and especially the confrontation with the Jews. And we'll see that coming up uh, quite a bit. Okay? All right, let's look, uh, first of all, at the purpose of the gospel. And we would say this is the purpose, really, of all Scripture. But the purpose of John's gospel is beautifully summarized in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So just take a look at that. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Okay, so it says there, Now Jesus did many other signs. There's another one. So many other miracles, many, many other signs, that, uh, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is just saying, Jesus did many other things that you won't find here in this book, but the ones that I have put in this book are here, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, in other words, the Anointed One, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So there is the purpose right there for this entire gospel. And as I said, we would say, when we teach confirmation, we would say, this is the purpose of the entire Bible. Whole scriptures point to Jesus as the Messiah, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay? All right. We're going to go to John 1 1 in just a moment, but I'll stop here. Any questions, any comments before we dig into the actual gospel itself? Yes? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the point was that uh, Jesus assigns, if in fact he is related like this, he assigns another relative, I guess it would be his cousin, uh, to care for Mary instead of one of his own uh, other siblings. Now you wonder, were the other siblings there at the cross? Uh, we don't have any account that they were. So in a, in a sense, maybe John is the closest one there, and he is the one apparently whom Jesus loved, uh, sincerely loved. So, yes? Yeah. Right. That's a good point. That it's not until the resurrection that his own uh, siblings actually believe in him. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, they, wanted, they, they thought he was crazy. That's exactly what it says. They wanted to take him, pull him back, get him back home. Uh, they thought he was crazy. And it's not until after the resurrection that they seem to turn around. And, and in fact, uh, uh, 
More than, more than believe, yeah. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Good point. Yes. 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 Uh -huh. Oh, no. Uh, now, when he, when he refers to himself as God, he's not, a, he's not saying, I, he will say, I and the Father are one, for example, one divine essence. But we still have three distinct persons. And the only thing he says, the thing about the Holy Spirit, is that he will send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. But again, those are three separate persons. So what we're saying there is he is equating himself with God, in, in, the, in this case, the Old Testament, using God's personal name from the Old Testament. Right. Um, one other thing just flashed through my mind. Oh, uh, I should have mentioned when we were at the cross that in the assigning of the care of Mary, uh, obviously that raises a huge question, where is Joseph, right? And that has led many people to say that, you know, or think at least that Joseph is not around anymore. Whether he has died, um, we, don't, we just don't know. Uh, there's the old theory that Joseph was quite a bit older uh, than Mary. Again, we don't know that. But uh, it just seems odd that he would assign that to John if Joseph is still around. Okay? I should have mentioned that when we were back there. Anything else? Yes, Keith? Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't going to get into that, but why not? Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are some, uh, sometimes referred to as the synoptic gospels, or the same site gospels. And while they each have their own uh, parts that are unique to each one of them, they pretty much follow the same pattern of, uh, you know, of Jesus' life and teaching and so on. John is different. John is uh, not seeking to follow a chronological approach, in fact, quite a bit different, although at the crucifixion, as I say, is one of the best crucifixion accounts of all of them. So John is different in that regard. He's not of the same vision in terms of his gospel following through. And, and uh, John has some, although the, the Greek is very simple, when you're, uh, when you're a seminary student, you love uh, translating John. It's very simple Greek. However, the thoughts are very profound. Does anybody know what the symbol for the Gospel of John is? There's an animal symbol for each of the Gospels. It's the eagle. The eagle. And what does an eagle do? Fly very high and lofty. And John has, as we'll see when we go through very high and lofty thoughts uh, and, and helps us to, to think in those much more um, high uh, ways. Okay? Yes, Jan? Right. right. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, I should have mentioned John was the one that designed the cross, uh, and the uh, and the, I'm gonna I'm not gonna tell you what I'm gonna preach on in a couple of weeks. So I'll give it away, 
but uh, design, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll just, put it, I'll just give you this hint. Uh, the gospel lesson is, I am the vine, you are the branches. And uh, there's a whole lot of vines. Take a look around in our, uh, in our church. And again, that was Don's, Don's design. All right? If you don't mind, let's get into uh, John 1.1 and at least uh, take a running leap into the, into the text itself. We'll see how far we get today. Uh, this will sound fam- uh, familiar to you, uh, if, if not because we just had this. On, this is the gospel lesson every Christmas day. Is John 1, 1 through 14. And so you would have just heard it a couple of weeks ago, uh, read in church. Let's begin then. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, let's stop right there. There's a whole lot in this verse. When you hear the word in the beginning, or the words rather, in the beginning, where do you think of immediately? How does, Genesis, how does the Bible begin, Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And we go a little bit further, and we see the Spirit was hovering upon the waters. So there's two persons of the Trinity, and you've got to go to John 1-1 to get the fact that not only was Jesus there, but through him, everything was created that was created. So the Trinity, or the, the creation, is one of those spots where we know the triune God was there and was active. Um, and so, in the beginning was the Word. Now, when we start off with this, we don't know who this Word is yet. So kind of pretend you don't know who this Word is yet, okay? I know we all know, but pretend you don't. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, there are three clauses here about the Word in this one verse. Three clauses. And each, in each of those clauses, the word is the subject, and there's a past tense verb, was. You see the three wases? That tense in Greek is called an imperfect tense, and it means something that continued to be the case. In other words, it describes a condition that was continuing at that point. So if in the beginning God, this word was continuing to be, what does that tell you about this word? He was there before the beginning, wasn't he? In other words, he is eternal. Never had a beginning and we know never will have an end. Okay? Another thing I'll point out is that that last phrase, and the word was God. If we were looking at the Greek, guess which word in that phrase comes first? God. And that's for emphasis. The subject of that clause is the word, because it's got the definite article with it, but it emphasizes God was the word. In other words, God was continuing to be the Word, okay? And so this verse right here, verse 1, emphasizes the divinity of Christ. We're going to see when we get to verse 14 that that verse emphasizes the humanity of Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, 
That verse will emphasize the humanity. This verse emphasizes the divinity. So you've got kind of bookends there, all talking about this word. Now remember, we don't know who this is yet. Okay? So kind of keep an open mind. Going on, verse 2. Now we find out what about this word, he was in the beginning with God. Oh no, wait a minute. Now this word is a he. So now we're kind of getting a little more clue, aren't we, as to what this word is that we're talking about here. He was with God. And then three, all things were made through him. In other words, he was the instrument, we might say, or the means through which God created all things. The Father created all things. And just in case we're wondering, he says here, and without him, meaning this word, was not anything made that was made. In fact, again, where it says not anything, in the Greek, it, it literally is not one thing. <laughs> not one thing was made that was made without him. So everything, in other words. Okay? And we don't normally think of Jesus. We think of the Father as the creator, don't we? In fact, that's one of his chief works. But obviously, it is through the agency of Jesus that all things were created as well. Okay? Which again, goes right back to his I am statements, don't, doesn't it? Back to, again, his, his divinity. Verse 4, in him again, notice there, was life, and the life was the light of men. And so you'll see here that um, light and life in John are connected, but notice in him, in this, in this uh, word, in this uh, divine word, was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay? Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Kind of interesting. Notice the light shines, present tense. It doesn't say the light shined, past tense. The light shines. And many think that's an intentional uh, used by John, that that light still shines today. It's not, it, and it shines through his word and his sacraments, and it's not something that was merely an historical, you know, it, it's kind of like you turn on a light switch and then you turn it off. No, the light still shines. That's a present tense that is used there, okay? And we rejoice in that and help spread that light. And notice there the darkness has not overcome it. Or the darkness, you can take that to mean the darkness has not conquered it. The darkness has not taken it captive. So in other words, this light is stronger, greater than the darkness of this world. And notice again in John the contrast between light and darkness. We're going to continue to see that. Okay? All right, one more little section. We'll just go through verse 8, and then we're going to have to stop, I think. Now here, in verses 6 through 8, there's a contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. So not John the writer of the gospel, but John the Baptist and Jesus. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. 
He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And notice there's quite a contrast here uh, between, and it's intentional, we think, between John the Baptist and Jesus. That John the Baptist was not the light. He simply came to bear witness to the light. And you know, we've always wondered, John the Baptist, did he have disciples? Absolutely. Had quite a following, apparently. And remember, his disciples, he sends them to ask Jesus. When John's in prison, John the Baptist is in prison, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus the question, remember, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? And here we see this big, and you always wonder, how big a following did John the Baptist get at that time? Apparently considerable. And here John, uh, the gospel writer, is writing around 90 or so A.D., and wants to set the record clear that this John the Baptist came with only one purpose in mind, and that's to witness to the light, and that he, is, he was not the light, but just came as a witness. And he, I always wonder, why did he go to such an extent to, to you know, make that so plain? Were there still disciples of John the Baptist running around at this point? I don't know. But apparently, John the Baptist had quite a following, even his own disciples. Okay? So that whole section kind of is intentionally doing that. All right, we're going to stop right now, and uh, we'll pick up, or yeah, we'll be picking up next week then at verse 9. And as I say, get through uh, uh, down to verse 14, which emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Okay? All right, let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Be and abide with you all. Amen. All right, thank you.